Yeah, you bet. Little secret here. Uh, every time Zach gives me a hug, I start crying too. I don't know. I don't know what it is about him, but uh, anyway, happy Mother's Day. Um, we are jumping right in, continuing in a series that's been in First and Second Peter. And so, if you have a Bible with you, we encourage you to bring it. If you've got one, if not, there are some Bibles somewhere. I think are they on the little tables or something? Anyway, we try to provide those for you as well. And uh, you can use a smart Bible, right, on your app as well. Um, but if not, the words will be up here. But Second uh, Peter, it's, it's, uh, it's similar to the letter of First Peter in that it was a circular letter. So it was distributed throughout all of Asia Minor to the churches there as an encouragement. And Peter, uh, specifically, we're going to see as we're progressing through Second Peter, he is confronting false teaching. So there were false teachers who, who were, were coming up in the church, and they were influencing the people to believe a false gospel and to ultimately uh, justify immoral behavior by what was being preached. And so it was a pretty serious time uh, in the life of the church. And what Peter has laid out for us up to this point, quite clearly, is that the secret to resisting these false ideas and false understandings and the behaviors that they create is uh, to receive and know and to live according to truth. And, and so that's where we've been up to this point. I'm going to start now picking up at verse 12 of 2 Peter 1, so you can follow along. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning, and uh, we come, I think at least the majority of us come, with a sense of expectation, believing that this uh, time in your word, it's not about an eloquent uh, set of words being given by a speaker, it's about someone humbly just trying to come and, and uh, for us together to open this word and just ask God, what do you have for us? Anything that is truly effective, anything that is truly life-changing, it's not going to come from our own effort. It's not going to come from a good sermon. It's going to come from your word and your work and your spirit's work in our hearts. And so, Lord, we open ourselves now asking that you work, Lord, that you rebuke the lies of the enemy that be upon us, the, the weakness of the flesh that tempts us, and Lord, help us now to hear what it is that you'd have to say to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the catchphrases thrown around in politics uh, now quite a bit is this whole idea that the media is presenting fake news. And uh, I read a recent Gallup study that showed that it doesn't matter really what your political persuasion is. It doesn't really matter what your age is. There is this growing distrust for media and for the news. And uh, one of the studies I read showed that in 1999, 55% of Americans trusted radio, TV, and newspapers for their news. But today, that number has now shrunk to 32%. Uh, it's crazy to me thinking that, you know, we live in a free democratic society, free press, all those things, but the majority of people actually have little to no trust for the news. And in this sense, I think it's safe to say that truth is under attack in our culture that there's this general feeling among most people 
that what you're hearing around you isn't true, or it's at least only partially true. Now, this is kind of depressing. It's kind of discouraging to think from a cultural level that this is the case. But guess what? I've got some really, really good news for you today. And the good news is this, that Peter's message to the believers in Asia Minor is that there is an absolute truth that you can count on, that it's not a false truth, it's not a partial truth. According to Francis Schaeffer, it's a true truth. It is a true truth. You see, amidst the quicksand of the cultural climate in which we live, we can hold on to a rope that Peter is giving us today, knowing that no matter what happens, we will not sink in the shifting sands. And so what we're going to see is three things today from these verses. The first is that the passion of Peter is to remind us of the transforming truth of the gospel. The second thing is that that his passion is to spend his life so reminding us of this truth that we might be stirred up into faith and action. And then finally, that by the time of his passing, he could rest in peace knowing that we would never forget the truth that he proclaimed. So let's look at this first one. The passion of Peter is to remind us of the transforming truth of the gospel. Look again at verse 12. Let's dig in there. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So Peter, he's calling us back to some qualities. He's calling us back to something that, that comes from our being established in truth. And, and so what, what are these qualities that he's referring to? Well, there is a very familiar little trick that we often refer to in Christian circles is that when you read a verse that starts with therefore, you always have to look back and see, well, what's he referring to? And so, so what I want to do is just quickly summarize the principles that we learned in verses 3 through 11. Okay, in verse 3, we learned that the truth of the gospel has been given to us by God to empower us to live godly lives. Verse 4, that through the word of God, we've been given promises that assure us that we're God's children. And that we're, because we're his children, we're set apart from the corruption of this world. Verses 5 through 7, Peter lists this amazing list of qualities that are produced by the truths of the gospel. Qualities like faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. A way of looking at it is this way, that the truth of the gospel, it literally makes us into people with special abilities, like spiritual superheroes, okay? These abilities are given to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it empowers us to, to live and to love in supernatural ways. In verses 8 and 9, we learned that these abilities of the gospel, that they're being produced in increasing measure. And that if you're not growing in these qualities, it's because you've forgotten the truth of the gospel, or maybe maybe you never knew it. And then verses 10 and 11, that if you're confident in the promises of God and confirmed in the gospel that you can be secure in your salvation, you no longer need to live in fear. You can rest in the work of God to save you. And so... I encourage you to listen to previous sermons if you haven't been here because it'll provide just so much more fullness in your understanding of what we're about to go through. Now, I do want to stop for a moment and recognize that there are unbelievers among us. There are some of you who are either very young in your faith or perhaps you just this is all new to you. And, and so the gospel, and when we say gospel, it's just like, well, what, what do you mean by that? So let me quickly review what that means. See, in the beginning of creation... 
God was perfect and loving, and he, he created this world and he created people so that we could know and enjoy him. But it didn't last long because the reality is there is sin within us, and that sin led us down this path of rather than wanting to please God, like what Michael was saying, we, we want to please ourselves, we want to pursue those things other than God for our sense of value and hope, and so in that rebellion and according to our selfish desires, we deserve judgment. We deserve that. We deserve punishment for sin, and yet God was unbelievably merciful in that he took on flesh as his son Jesus and he lived a perfect life and and he died on the cross in order to take upon himself the punishment that every one of us deserved for sin. And and then God raised him from the dead to, to show us that the penalty for sin had been completely satisfied. And that all who turn and trust in Jesus, that we can be forgiven, we can be made into a new creation. We're, we're adopted into God's family. We become children of the Father. And we now enjoy the riches of the inheritance of Christ as his children. Now, if you look at the latter part of, of verse 12, it makes sense to you that this is the truth that Peter was talking about. That, that, that the, the, the believers in Asia Minor have been established in this gospel now, I've got a confession to, you, to make to you this morning. And the confession is this, that as a pastor and as an elder in this church, there is a temptation when coming to speak before you to try and bring some new and innovative thing, to, to say something that is so compelling that has never been said before, to, to say something that's worthy of a bestseller or that people will rave about again and again, But the reality is, it's not our calling. That's not our calling. It's not a calling of a pastor. It's not even a calling as a Christian. Our calling is to return again and again and again to the simple message of the gospel. Though there's this temptation in us to move on, though there's temptation to look for something fresher or more exciting, Peter is calling us back to the qualities of the gospel in which we've been established. Now, uh, I've been reading this biography. Uh, it's the life of Adoniram Judson to the Golden Shorts. It's a great story. I, I was familiar with his life, but, uh, but it wasn't until I read this that I really got into the, just the beautiful detail of, of how God used him. He was the first missionary from America, or at least he's, he's hailed as that. It was back in 1812, uh, he went from the colonies to the people of Burma to share the gospel with them. And the cost of the missionary lifestyle and the perils that he faced, especially because of the era in which he went, I mean, they're unthinkable. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe it. It was like one more thing after another of, of terrible trauma and challenge and difficulty. And over the course of his mission in Burma, he, he and those he he loved, they faced severe persecution, constant sickness. He, he spent 17 months uh, brutally tortured in prison only to see his young bride, the mother of his, uh, of his child, die tragically because of sickness. Um, over the course of his ministry, he watched 24 loved ones and associates in ministry die. And this includes several wives. This is, included several of his children And what struck me again and again throughout this story of his life is that despite the depression and discouragement, and I'm telling you, like, he at one point dug his own grave and slept every night 
just wishing he, he would die. I mean, he, he went through such hardship, but despite all the discouragement, the countless sorrows he faced, and in, uh, he endured uh, for one reason. He endured uh, because of his love for and hope in the gospel and, and God's strength through that. Um, following the death of his second wife, they were heading back to the United States with the hopes of, of sparing her life from deep sickness, and, and yet she died at sea. And so they, they buried her, and then uh, he boarded the ship again with his three young children. And uh, while uh, surrounded by their sobbing, this is what he wrote in his journal. For a few days in the solitude of my cabin, with my poor children crying around me, I could not help abandoning myself to heartbreaking sorrow. But the promise of the gospel came to my aid, and faith stretched her view to the bright world of eternal life. Before Adoniram died, he translated the Bible into the Burmese language. He saw 100 churches planted. He saw 8,000 Burmese people profess faith in Christ. And so his unfading belief, it was the power of the gospel to not only sustain him by God's grace and mercy, but to empower him in the desire to see the Burmese people know this great news. My question for you is this. Is the transforming truth of the gospel enough for you? Is it enough for you? I've seen eyes roll. I've heard sighs as I've opened the Bible and pointed people to the gospel who are struggling with marriage or struggling with anxiety or addictions. I think they're thinking I've heard that before. I, I get that. Can we move on to something more relevant? But I'm here to tell you, friends, that there is essentially nothing else you need to know, that we simply need to be reminded again and again that the hope for our marriage, the hope for our singleness, the hope for our healing, and the hope to endure, it's found in this unfading, enduring message of hope that we need to be reminded again and again that God so loves us, that he died for us, that he adopted us, that we have a new hope and a new future and a new identity. So we've seen that the passion of Peter is to remind us of the transforming truth of the gospel. And now let's, let's see how the passion of uh, Peter is expressed in his spending his life, reminding us again and again of the truth. Why? So that we might be stirred up in faith and action. So let's look at verse 13. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So Peter's passion was to stir us up to faith and action again and again, reminding us of this gospel of grace. Now, there's been a lot of conversation in historic circles and skeptic circles as well related to the influence of the oral tradition in the scriptures. And the oral tradition is just simply this idea that there were uh, fables and stories that were passed on from generation to generation that were eventually written down in this book. Oftentimes, this argument is used as a criticism to the integrity of scriptures. But, but it's worth noting here that Peter's passion is very clearly communicated. It's that the truths of which he spoke would not be forgotten. 
His passion was that they would not be misunderstood. So what did he do? He wrote them down. He was so committed to these truths, so relentless in his clarification of them, that he didn't want them to be forgotten. And so he either penned words or he, he dictated the words to a scribe who would write them down so that they would not be forgotten. So, so those of you who are unbelievers, you, you might be annoyed by the fact that, that Christians hold up this word as without error. It might bug you that we go to it for answering the questions of life. But what I want you to understand is we don't do it as ones clinging to myths. We do it as ones believe that, believing that we are clinging to truths written by people, trusting in the fact that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they meticulously dictated in order to accurately remind us again and again of the truths by which they've given their lives. Remember, Peter was on his way to losing his life for this very cause. He wrote these words so that we would get them, so they would be clear, so that we would be reminded again and again, so they would stir us up to, to live and to love in a different way. Now, it's, it's fitting that we uh, think about this text on Mother's Day uh, because uh, parenting is one of those experiences that requires a toleration of endless repetition. Okay, do I get an amen? Yeah. It is. Carrie and I, we raised five kids, and I vividly remember, I mean, we still are doing this, but it's different now, but I vividly remember, in particular in those earlier years, how, like, for the thousandth time, we would say things like, you know, pick up your room, or say thank you, or, you know, take that dish and, you know, put it in the dishwasher. I mean, it's an exercise in repetition, and similarly, there's this whole issue of the movies they watch and the songs they listen to, Right? I mean, this dates me a little bit, but I remember with our earlier kids seeing Little Mermaid and hearing wheels on the bus go round and round, like, to, nausea, you know, to the point of nausea. And that's what it's like. Well, well in light of this repetitious tendency, I, I did some research this week because I was just curious about this whole issue. And what I learned is that God has designed not only our children, but every one of us to grow through repetition. Um, the simplified explanation is this. It requires electrical energy to create neural pathways in the brain, and that the less automatic a behavior, the more energy is required. So for example, uh, we can all probably, I would assume, count to 10 in this room. But why is that the case? Why is counting to 10 a very, very easy thing? Well, it's because you've done it all your life, right? And, And so the more traveled a pathway is, the less energy is required. Uh, this can be seen why some people can do two things so easily. The example in this research that I read was this whole idea of knitting. Now, I don't know anything about knitting, but I guess uh, what I understand is that when you start to learn knitting, it, it, it requires a lot of concentration. You have to really, really focus. But once you get really, really good at it, you can watch TV fully engaged and knit the perfect pair of mittens. Okay, and, and the idea here is that through repetition, knitting becomes automatic. So, so how does this relate to Peter's passion to remind us of the truths of the gospel again and again? Well, you know, he may not have known the science behind it, but he knew this truth. He knew that God designed us to need to hear it again and again. 
and Zach talked about this in last week's sermon, that this idea we need to remind ourselves again and again of who we are in light of the gospel. And then little by little, less energy is needed. The neurological pathways are formed that make believing these truths the natural part of who we are. So when we face that hardship for the hundredth time, we no longer spin out of control, but we run quickly to the truth of who we are in Christ. And it begins to change how it is we process these things. It's amazing how God has knit into the very fabric of who we are our need for repetition for our transformation. And this is why uh, I've said quite a bit lately, I don't know why I was impressed with this, but I think it ties in, that, that those who attend the vine faithfully, that you're going to swim in a gospel-centered culture, and, and that you only have two choices. You're either going to change or you're going to leave. Because if you've been listening to recent sermons, again, you've heard this fleshed out. The gospel is relevant to these things. It's relevant to how you respond when getting fired. It's relevant to how you pick yourself after, up after dismal failure. It's relevant to how you have the courage to share the gospel with others. And the more reminded we are of these truths, the more natural they become. So without apology, the vine, we are going to gravitate around these truths. We're going to be relentless in them. After preaching to his students about the gospel, the great reformer, Martin Luther, he had one of his students exclaim, why are you preaching this to us for the 20th time? To which he responded, because you didn't get it the 19th. The passion of Peter is to remind us of the transforming truth of the gospel and then to spend his life so reminding us that we might be stirred up in faith which leads to the last point today, that the passion of Peter is that by the time of his passing, he could rest in peace, knowing that we would never forget this truth upon which we stand. Look again with me. Uh, I'm gonna go from 13 all the way through to the end. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since knowing that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to able at any time to recall these things. Now, historically speaking, this letter was likely written following the burning of Rome. And the burning of Rome uh, happened, and 70% of the buildings in Rome were destroyed. Now, Emperor Nero, just like any politician, you know, he felt this need to pin that on something, to, to blame someone in order to continue to have the, the faithfulness of the people to follow him. And so what did he do? He blamed the Christians. He said the Christians started these fires. And uh, for this reason, a tragedy ensued. Thousands of people who uh, named the name of Christ were crucified. There were many who were uh, persecuted, uh, many, many. And it's for this reason we believe that Peter's now an elderly man sitting likely in a jail in Rome. But, But he knew his death was near not only for that reason. He knew it because of something that he learned from Jesus. And we think what he's referring to is John 21, 18 through 19. This was the conversation Jesus had with Peter. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you 
where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So this helps us to understand the urgency of Peter, doesn't it? Peter had confidence because he knew his life was temporary. Now, if you look again at verse 14, you see that Peter's describing that he's preparing for something, that he's preparing to put off his body. Now, in the original language, the word for for body is tent. So he's preparing to put off his tent, to lay it aside. And so what we need to see here is Peter wasn't freaking out. He, He wasn't fearful or worried. He wasn't racked with anxiety over this. To him, death was, was, was the simple putting aside of a tent. It was like removing one piece of garment to put on another. You see, Peter's comfort was actually in a view of the temporary nature of life. Okay, he had that view. It's very clear here. And that that view, as we see, gave him a sense of clarity. It gave him a sense of resolve about what mattered most. So he wasn't obsessing about the controversies of the day because there were plenty to obsess about. He wasn't working out or scrutinizing his diet in such a way as to have washboard abs. He, he wasn't racked with anxiety, thinking that death was something to fear. His, his embrace of the temporary nature of life, just like a, a garment you wear and set aside, it did something quite the opposite to those things. It gave him this 2020 vision. It gave him this crystal clarity about what was most important in life. His impending death led him to relentlessness in his love for the gospel. It, it caused him to give his life for this great cause of distributing and reminding others of this beautiful message. Now, if, if you're an unbeliever or a skeptic in this room, you might think that this idea is the problem with religion. Okay, after all, the hope for a better life beyond this world is why things like 9-11 happened. But what you need to understand is this. The way people die is conditioned by the things they believe. Again, the way people die is conditioned by the things they believe. So while a religious terrorist dies believing that killing infidels is his path to an eternity of sexual pleasure, the Christians hope it's radically different. Because to be a Christian is to humbly rest in the truth that we have no hope in ourselves and that our only hope is in a merciful and gracious God who saved us through his own sacrifice. To be a Christian is to weep tears of joy as we recognize that Jesus died the death we deserved in order to give us the life that we could have never lived. To be a Christian is to be so grateful for how the gospel has changed us that our dying breath is, is spent longing to declare and longing to demonstrate its power to others. So to know the truth of the gospel and to know God's word means that there is an awareness in us that life is temporary here on earth, but it's eternal in the heavens, right? And that temporary nature of life, it doesn't incite anger and violence, but it stirs us up in humility and love. Again, the way people die is conditioned by the things they believe. 
So what will you leave behind as you put aside your mortal body? What's the legacy you long to leave as a mother, a father, sister, brother, daughter, son, friend? When people observe your life, what matters most to them? Do they simply see you as an accomplished professional? Do they simply see you as an, as an artisan or a, you know, an athlete? Do they simply see you as a devoted parent? These are all good things, but what matters most to you? What do people see? Is it that you're rooted in a passion and a love for Jesus and a love for his word and the gospel? Years ago, Robert Shaw, he's a famous choir conductor, and uh, he was about to conduct Bach's St. Matthew's Passion at Carnegie Hall. And uh, he came out at the beginning of the performance before the choir and orchestra, and he turned to the crowd and he spoke these words to them. For some in the audience this evening, this will be the first time you hear St. Matthew's Passion. For others, it will be the last. He then turned and raised his baton and brought in the orchestra for this musical telling of the passion story of the cross of Christ. See, Robert Shaw understood that the uh, temporary nature of life should call us to attention about that which matters most. And so I close this message with a few questions in light of what we learned today. Does embracing the temporary nature of your life, does it bring about clarity and passion for the gospel of Jesus? Does embracing the temporary nature of life inspire you to remind yourself and others again and again of the truths of the gospel, to guard it, to proclaim it? Does embracing the temporary nature of your life, does it cause you to come to him now, maybe for the first time, and say, Lord, I need you? For some of you in this room, this may be the first sermon you've ever heard. For others of you, it may be your last. Let's pray. Lord, I know there's a a sense of gravity to this thought, this message, and to the, the picture that you're giving us through the eyes of Peter, that he knows his time's coming to an end, and he has adopted a choice to to view his life by your grace and in light of your gospel as a temporary gift. Lord, but this isn't a bummer today. This is an, an encouragement. Lord, help us to walk away from this place and to leave this place reminded of the things that matter most, investing our lives in loving, investing our lives in embracing, investing our lives in centering ourselves around the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it be our strength in the days of discouragement, that it be our hope in the mountaintops of our successes. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.